Hello and uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is uh, Nico Heller and uh, welcome to Reboot 2030, the uh, Democracy Schools YouTube channel. My guest today is John Davenport and we'll be looking at how to strengthen democracy, democracy uh, locally or domestically in the US and also globally. Now, John, uh, he's a professor at, of philosophy, political philosophy mainly at Fordham University in New York. Uh, and he teaches on the subjects apart from political philosophy of ethics, existentialism, and moral psychology, and also on certain aspects of the philosophy of religion. He has authored um, A League of Democracies, a plan to meet the rising threats from China and Russia. And he presently prepares a book uh, on the need for constitutional reform uh, in the US to fix the American federal system. I can see that Sean is already here, so let me bring him on straight away. There you go. There he's coming on. Sean, hi, how are you doing? You are still muted. You have to turn on the, uh, the sound. There you go. There we go. How's that? Can you hear Welcome me? Welcome to Reboot 2030. Thank you very much for being my guest today. Well, thank you for having me. Let me adjust my camera a little so I'm not too close. I see I'm, is that a bit better? There we go. So, so, so how, how, how is the, it's morning in uh, New York and it's late afternoon in Berlin. So this is the kind of the new world of digital communications, isn't it? We can have this uh, conversation halfway around the world without boarding an aeroplane. I think that's actually in the, uh, in the age of climate change, that's a great, a, a great uh, a benefit. Oh, I love it. It's fantastic. This is, I mean, one of the few silver linings from COVID is that we've now all discovered, you know, how, how easy this is. It isn't perfect for everything. I must say, you know, teaching students, I prefer in person, but uh, for many things, this is wonderful. I mean, get to see so many people in other continents who we would never otherwise get to see so it's that's right that it has, it has speeded up or it has heated up over the last two years hasn't it so a lot more alliances and networks have formed globally and we'll come to this because i believe you're a member of a number of these networks and obviously the digital that. revolution benefits us in that respect greatly um john i said a few words about you already but very very sort of high level that you're a full professor of philosophy at uh, at fordham university um that you teach uh mainly political philosophy, but also ethics, existentialism, and moral psychology, and certain aspects uh, of uh, the philosophy of religion. Um, today yeah. is really very much a focus on the, if you like, the political philosophy, but the, the applied end of it, isn't it? It's like, you know, how, how we can make ends meet and how we can find a way out of the current sort of the, the crisis of democracy that has sort of befall not just the US, but I think, uh, you know, a large part of, uh, of, 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 of the world uh, uh, today. Um, you've authored a League of Democracies, a plan to meet the rising threat from Russia and China. That sounds almost like a conspiracy theory. So we, I look forward to hearing a little bit more about this. Um, and you're currently working on very concrete, uh, very concrete proposals to reform uh, the, the US, the American constitution. Um, these are grand schemes, really, um, and um, and I'm, I'm really glad to have you here today to see whether that we can plot a path through all the different kind of hurdles and barriers that are in the way to bring about some fundamental change. Um, let me 
jump straight in, Sean. You, you, you've kind of set yourself up a little bit as someone who is going to save liberal democracy. Um, I, and, and you're in a kind of... In, 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 in good company here, because I think in some ways Reboot 2030 is trying to do a bit of that as well. Um, when I when I sort of just looked at some of your stuff, you focus very much on structural aspects of reform. So if you like the heart, the nuts and bolts of, of democracy, uh, the institutions really, and the international order, uh, rather than the soft aspects, the education, the ethics, the this, that and the other. Let, maybe let's start with this sort of fundamental question, why? Why focus on the, the legalistic aspects and not say the sociology of it or, or other aspects of it? What, what's your kind of take on this? Uh, it's, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I think one actually could start from the other direction, uh, you know, looking at um, really, you know, concrete interactions between individuals, uh, you know, the, um, the awareness or lack of awareness of different global problems that you see reflected in their conversations in their interactions and in the incentives that they have. Um, and, you know, more local, uh, you know, institutional structures and what happens between uh, smaller numbers or groups of people at that level. I think you'll end up in the same place, actually, if you start from that direction. Uh, it's a case where sort of all roads lead to the same conclusion. Uh, and uh, I took one route, you might say, but you could take you could take the other uh, or several other directions. And I think in the end, you'd find that, well, you know, the problems that people face, uh, e even on the local level or trying to work together in small groups, to some extent, uh, some of those can be solved by networking, uh, by, if you like, you know, the uh, voluntary uh, efforts of people uh, with NGOs and other civic organizations. But inevitably, you start to hit you know, harder problems that are real limits uh, to what local communities and groups can do, because you've got, you, simply you've got global public goods at issue. You've got goods where, unless there's some sort of harder uh, coordination or joint policy uh, among, you know, groups at the local and eventually even the national level, you won't really be able to do what you need to do to, to solve these big global problems, because, uh, you know, there are there are just incentives to compete in mutually self-defeating ways. I know in some of your other interviews on this series, you've had this point made with respect to uh, the European Union, the Council of Europe, trying to, trying to deal, for example, with, um, you know, nations competing for energy sources uh, in, in the recent crisis. So That's right. I think you, you see that sort of logic repeated again and again and again. It's what uh, sociologists and economists call collective action problems. Um, and uh, because of them, uh, you, we end up seeing eventually there's a need for, uh, you know, for coordination uh, at a higher level. Uh, and that really does demand institutional structures, but that are nevertheless answerable to people, uh, all, ultimately all the way down to, you know, individuals who hear reasons and, you know, decide for themselves if, if they're convinced. So uh, I'm a follower of Jürgen Habermas in that respect, at least. <laughs> Yes. Um, now, um, two words that figure really large in, 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 in your work is the word liberal and the word democracy. Now, you put those two words together and you come up with a very specific mix of policies and also mix of a, a certain governmentality, if you like. Now, um, would, if you would set that against other forms of democracy, what would be the kind of what would be the limiting cases in, in different directions? Mm. Well, uh, of course, we speak a lot uh, these days about so-called illiberal democracy. Uh, you have a, um, you know, a sliding scale there. 
Uh, I, I do think that democracy isn't really democracy in the strong normative sense. Uh, once you get too far away from uh, the basic norm of equal political liberties and rights uh, for all citizens. So, uh, for example, in, in a nation where you know, women really don't have freedom to vote or don't have much political voice, uh, I mean, there can be popular input of one kind or another that feeds its way up into uh, you know, the, the government decision-making mechanisms. But I don't think one can really call that democratic. Uh, the same would be said uh, if, um, uh, you know, if there's not really much opportunity for a free speech or for political action on the part of different religious or ethnic groups. However, that said, I, I think democracy is a, a flexible enough concept. If we look even at the history of the United States, and uh, maybe India would be a good example today as well. That, well I was coming to that, exactly. I uh, mean, this is, this is where do you draw the well, line? At what point does the liberal democracy kind of, you know, become any liberal or authoritarian democracy? And I mean, India is a case in point, and so is Brazil. Um, mm -hmm. And... Um, uh, and of course, right. within the European context, people have similar arguments about Hungary or Poland, for example. Um, right. Yes. <laughs> so, so what do you? What, what, so, when you're saving liberal democracy, is this trying to pull the, the likes of India and Brazil back into the fold, or where do you draw the line there? Well, I, I do. I do think that a certain amount of power sharing, you know, between different groups, um, and uh, you know, efforts to reach political stability through that kind of power sharing and also federalism of various kinds, right? Where there's a certain amount of decision-making and implementation powers uh, to sound very technical, you know, that are reserved for, you know, for lower levels of government. Uh, I think all of that is fine uh, and, um, you know, can be part of a bargain, you know, if you like the different groups make, uh, they're always revisable. We, we could come to this later, but in the case of the United States, we're sort of stuck with a bargain from 230 years ago. that's now not working very well. Um, uh, so we don't have, if you like, complete equality here uh, in the voting strength or weight uh, of different people in different parts of the United States. And that's going to be true to some extent in other federal republics and other federal systems um, where there's a certain amount of power sharing. Uh, but look, I mean, in the case of India, if you get to the, to the point where, um, you know, millions of people are being expelled because they're Islamic, um, you know, or, uh, you know, people's houses are routinely being bulldozered because they dare to say a word against the, uh, the local government or the provincial government, then I think you really have crossed the line at that point. Um, uh, you're, you're talking about violations of individual civil liberties and other rights like property rights that uh, they just disable certain segments of the population too much to really to really call it democracy. I would say the same thing about the United States in the era of what we call Jim Crow, right, right where many African-Americans in practice just couldn't really vote. Um, you know, that's democracy only in name in a kind of hollowed way. I mean, um, you get this, you get this, um, you know, if you like this sort of uh, the line we're talking about, you get this at a, at, a, at, a, at a global level. We're just talking about India here. We could talk about Brazil, too. Uh, when mm -hmm. you talk Russia or China, we have well crossed that line. So there's not really much of an argument there. But so you have that globally. Um, but then at a national level, I mean, for example, taking the United States, you have this real massive polarization between, you know, mm -hmm. sort of liberals or Democrats and, and Republicans. Um, and you have sort of the Trumpist kind of Tea Party wing with yeah. on the one side, and you have, and you also have the left wing that sort of, uh, uh, in like, you know, like on, on the Democratic side. So, um, yeah. 
and and of course Joe Biden's you know part of his mandate or the mandate he gave himself was to kind of try to reach across the aisle um, and yeah. and you know how successful has that been and how successful can that be um, and and what what is the what what kind of what should be the uh, yeah that's right and what should be what is the kind of the right strategy here you know is is it about reaching out is it about trying to bring people integrating people into the political mainstream or is it about cutting them out. Uh, and sort of starving them of oxygen. Where, where is the, where is, where, what is the strategy in your mind here? Um, both, paradoxically. I think uh, um, here really is a case where I think you do need the, the sort of softer reforms that have to do with um, uh, civic education and uh, you know, trying to reach out to individuals to bring them into, into discourse, into discussions, into more informal relations with people who don't share uh, the same political ideologies that they've developed. But but look, let me say this. Um, I think um, what we have in the United States here is a kind of perfect storm of polarization due to, it's actually quite simple. There are really just two basic factors driving it, in my judgment. You know, you, you'll find like thousands of analyses of, of these problems, of course, in American media and even scholars abroad looking and saying, what, what, what on earth is happening in the United States? Why is the country going insane? Um, it, it's not that Americans are, are, are that crazy inherently. Uh, I mean, we we do have some some interesting um, themes in our history, like this fascination with guns, which could be you know unique to us in part because of our history of the Western expansion, among other factors. But I think really what we see now in the United States is driven by the fact that we've always had for-profit media. We've never had anything like the BBC in Britain, for example. And that really is very fundamental because what it means is it's just what we see with algorithms and social media at sort of higher level that you know, the, the networks have to, have to feature and focus most on what sells and what sells is negative emotions, as we now know from all the social research on, on social media. Um, and, uh, and so you know, being inflammatory, trying to stress whatever you think your viewers are gonna find most outrageous, Nancy Pelosi said this, or Donald Trump tweeted that, or you know, that's what's gonna get you viewers. Um, so there's just a structural problem there in the way that the media is funded. Uh, and, and I think, you know, short of having some American version of the BBC, that's always going to be with us. We also don't have, this is a lesser problem, but we don't have um, uh, the same requirements that other countries do and that we once did have here for kind of fair and balanced coverage uh, of the different parties, uh, especially in election time. But sort of on the other side, there are a whole bunch of problems, but the main one, again, there's just one fundamental problem which is the way we've set up the political parties here. It's not a parliamentary system. Um, so, I mean, not every other democracy is a parliamentary system, but many of them are. They have their own problems. We see, you know, the squabbles, uh, um, you know, with forming coalitions. But here we've set it up in a way, um, primarily it's due, especially to our primary elections, where the candidates are chosen, who are going to, you know, go head to head in the sort of the, you know, the, the last round of the election, if you like. Um, we've set that up in a way that caters to the most extreme base of each party. So you've heard this before, but it's really true um, because the, the turnout in our primary elections is, is so low. It's driven primarily by just the most fanatical people on either wing. Um, that's who determines the candidates. And so over time, there's been you know, what sociologists call a sorting, where people get more and more in their own camps. And, they, and so the, the political parties have have an incentive also, like the media, to try to inflame anger as much as possible. Because 
And, and of course, that, that creates a perfect storm, doesn't it? Because you have got a media yeah. that benefits from it, and you've got a politician that benefits from it, and then you get yeah. you get that dynamic it's a going. Yes. Symbiotic relation between the two. They both love. I mean, so it's it's a truism, I think, at this point, that the media made Donald Trump. If they just ignored him more, he would never have won the primary election. Um, I'm not saying that uh, four years under President um, Ted Cruz would have been any better, but I think he probably would have won if, if uh, that would have had its own problems. But uh, <laughs> uh, but the Donald Trump phenomenon might have faded away. It's just it was a creation of the media love to feature him um, even more than a year before the actual election in, in 2016 because he was so incendiary and you know he drew so many viewers. So yeah, we we have to stop that cycle. You know, we have to change the primary elections. That's a structural reform. Uh, we have to change the way that the media works, especially with respect to political coverage. Um, and you're never going to do that without, I think, hard legal mandates is the only way. We used to have a law here that was called the Fair and Balanced Law that required, you know, some minimum of, of you know, explaining the other point of view on your network. Um, and uh, and then, uh, well, we need limits on campaign advertising that our well, system funding, here generally, is campaign funding, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's essential. So these are some fundamental structural reforms. But I also would say uh, that Americans are lacking two things where I dare say many European countries are doing better than us. Uh, maybe not in every respect, but partly because the United States is such a big country. If you look at what American high school students um, will study here, you'll find in many cases they take two full years of American history, which not to knock, I love American history. I teach courses on this, but that's all of 300 years, right? With starting with um, you know Native Americans, uh, uh, really before there were many settlers here, 350 years, give or take. Um, and then you might have, you know, two semesters, one full year of courses that take you all the way from the pyramids to, um, you know, World War II in, in the history of the rest of the world. So we don't have American students come to college here and they don't really know much about what's happening in the rest of the world. Um, and they also don't understand the, the political structures at home because that's not a required course. Uh, they take American history but that doesn't actually tell you about these structural problems in the, you know, in the constitutional system. So you could imagine, you know, two more courses or two courses that would change, you know, would replace something else that would address. I think if this were required in our high schools, that would change things in a very deep way because it would be harder to sort of fool people. You know, it, people wouldn't be so um, they, they wouldn't be such sitting ducks to be manipulated. <laughs> So a lot of people think this. I mean, there, there are organizations working on civic education reforms here. I, they have so many different proposals. I, I think one problem with them is that they're not all sort of informed by a vision of you know, what the main structural reforms need to be and then how civic education fits into that as part of a larger package. So that's one of the things I hope to, to, to achieve so, in the book. So yeah. So there, there's kind of in a way, I mean, you know, sort of going from the kind of the global to the kind of the national down to the local. Um, the, 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 I mean, if, if you look back at the post-war years, specifically the 1950s, 60s and 70s, um, mm. you know, America's hands were not just clean, but they were kind of exemplary. I mean, the, the, the Marshall Plan, you name it, all of this was just, it was a dream. Uh, and of oh. course, there was the kind of industrial miracle. And um uh, and so, and, and, you know, leaving McCarthy and all this aside for a moment, um, that there was a sort of a strong sense that, that American democracy, you know, was a kind of a role model for the world. 
Um, and, and, and so the, the kind of the leadership role that the US had was not just grounded in military strength, but it was grounded primarily in a sort of cultural hegemony, if you like, uh, you know. Uh, and uh, so, so that was a sort of, it's a, the, and there was a kind of also, if you like, a, a national model like the US as a country of immigration where people from all over the world would go to start a new life and a better life and, and contribute to that to that idea of, uh, of an, uh, you know, for United States of America. That, that in a way kind of created a, you know, a leadership platform for the US, which was sort of second to none. Now this platform has been eroded step by step by step. And of course, the big kind of cataclysmic kind of collapse was the Trump years. And certainly in Europe, there is now a great amount of skepticism about the US's willingness and ability to lead. Um, and, and of course, then there's this new separation with you know Russia going its own way and, and China kind of in a way aligning itself, or it looks as if it might align itself with Russia uh, here. And so you get, you, get, you, get, you get a sort of a reshuffling of the world order and the US isn't really in a very strong position to shape that process at the moment. So, um, so my question here is, is, in a way, is for the US to essentially put itself in this position, there need to be international platforms. And one of these platforms could be a D10 plus. You, you talked about this before. Um, but of course, for this to work, the, the US would have to regain some kind of credibility as the leading democracy, wouldn't it? Otherwise, it would have great difficulties to lead this process. Uh, Which I, I think Joe Biden would like to do, but um, uh, yeah, he's probably not going to be here longer than four years. And so, you know, it's going to take a new administration. I mean, you're right. It would certainly help if there were a much stronger um, presentation from the American government, that there was more unity behind a, a strong president who, you know, who um, uh, presented to the world, you know, is very credibly concerned with global justice and, you know, with, with ethical um, imperatives and, and had that integrity. And I think the history that you speak of, by the way, in the, you know, the 60s and 70s, this was a time where conditions were just right in the United yeah. States for the flawed system we have to actually work. Uh, there was, you know, willingness to compromise and civil rights legislation, um, uh, you know, the civil rights movement. It was a period there, there of hope as well. Right. I mean, so I might put it this way, that the flaws in our systems just didn't really show as much at that point, whereas now they're really showing uh, very, very clearly. Um, so we have internal reform work to do. And I think, you know, people have realized that in recent years, while I'm thinking, well, we need to build a stronger, you know, global coalition of democracies in one form or another that really can stand up to these rising threats from Russia and China, and to some extent, Iran as well. They, these are very significant threats. Um, as we certainly see now, uh, you know, many analysts have been saying for years, but it's, you know, it'll be even clearer if China invades Taiwan. Um, but on the other hand, uh, maybe there's a silver lining in the American weakness uh, to an extent in that uh, I do think to move forward in the 21st century uh, to get enough buy-in, you know, enough uh, will to cooperate from uh, perhaps even, you know, some developed democracies in Asia, you know, from Japan and South Korea, and Australia, maybe at some point Indonesia in the future, and, and also India, um, as imperfect as its current government is, um, it may be helpful that it's perceived that this new organization is not going to be just a sort of a puppet of the United States. I mean, the United States would have a major role, hopefully, I think it would have to in setting it up and getting it going. 
but it, it really should be a more multilateral um, forum for you know, making to some extent global policy. Uh, the United States played a unique role throughout you know, much of the 20th century into this century, but I think we are at the point uh, in, in, in world history where it's, well, it's probably a good thing that there isn't too much American unilateralism. So that's a, a big shift in public opinion. And one of the few things um, that unites people across the political spectrum here is, I think, a swing towards isolationism, right? And so that's a, a factor we have to deal with here. Um, uh, and that's partly driven, again, by the ignorance of global events. Most American students, again, really don't know much about, you know, even the last 50 years of history around the world. Uh, so that could change with civic education. But it's un unsurprisingly also a result of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and a sense of exhaustion. Um, I mean, I hope that Biden in these you know, last few months has shored up a little bit you know, the image of NATO and helped uh, you know, convince people throughout the world that actually NATO would act in a, you know, in a, in a true emergency, especially a, you know, a nuclear threat of one kind or another. Um, so there's still, there's still something there. Uh, and there are plenty of American politicians who want that leadership role and uh, you know, who seek to shore it up, but it's gonna take a little bit of, um, well, let's put it this way. I think it will actually help sell this a broader multilateral process to Americans um, to see that other countries are doing a lot. Yeah. You know, that France and Germany and Britain and Japan and it, it actually especially, especially Germany yeah. would be nice, wouldn't it? <laughs> so what I mean, it would really. I think so. In in a way, I mean, this actually might be a moment in time where American audiences would accept this. Whereas if this were try, if we tried to say to people, well. You know, we want to set up a, a group of 12 nations. 10 is the number always gets cited at D10, but it could be 12 or 13, or you could have 10 primary members and four associate members who might be on their way to full membership. And there are lots of possibilities there with, with a, you know, a broader version of the G7. Um, and then eventually perhaps a wider alliance of democracies that stands behind that D12 or whatever it is. I think now many Americans would accept that because how would I, if I were American politician speaking to a broad audience, I would say, look, this means that, you know, the United States doesn't have to be the main one putting, you know, large numbers of troops into a ground war. If there's a conflict, um, we can help, but it would be with a broad effort. Uh, it would also help if more Americans understood that there were NATO troops from other countries in Afghanistan. See, this is one of the problems, most Americans think that was just us in Afghanistan, which obviously it was not. Uh, but that's not well publicized or covered here by for-profit media. <laughs> so I mean, I think part of, part of the problem there is is um, is that um, I mean we uh, we had this conversation uh, uh, in fact just the, the other week on on, on reboot as well about about the sort of the integration of sort of military capability in in Europe. Um, and, um, and because you have a, you have got a lot of sort of duplication, you know, you, you know, I mean, if you take the military, if you add together the military spending of all the European countries, it's actually a significant budget, but there is so much duplication and waste that it's not entirely clear whether the, Europe at present could withstand an attack from on its own from Russia uh, because of the, you know, the, the, the lack of integration, the lack of coordination. And, so mm -hmm. on. and now, of course, Germany, in this kind of, and it, I wasn't, I really became only aware of it through this uh, reboot uh, conversation. German now, and it sounds on the face of it really quite heroic, wants to invest a hundred billion into bumping up its military thing, but that would obviously be a death nail for European defense. 
because yeah. it would signal to every other country, and this is a significant amount in, in European terms, to every right. other European country, we're going it alone. Rather than pulling it into European army, Germany wants to spend a hundred billion on itself. And that kind of, in a way, totally blocks the possibility of a European army. So um, it, it's, it's an interest, there's a whole, there's a lot of maneuvering going on at the moment uh, at, at that level. Now, of course, a key player in this is France. And we've mm. all been watching the French elections, you know, with great interest. And it's been oh. a detriment, terrible result. Uh, I mean, yeah, he was, you know, he, you know, he still has the, the majority, but he lost his absolute majority. And of course, yes. Le Pen, right. the far right fascists in France, they have 10 times as many votes this time. They've got over 80. Last time they had just nine. They, they have become a serious, a significant, they are the third largest party in France. And of course, they're anti-European. So... Uh, you know, Macron now has to enter into some kind of alliance or coalition, uh, you know, with, with another party, maybe a centre-right party, but the centre-right party has a large anti-European element in it. Um, so, you yes. know, Macron's sort of European strategy and, 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 and policies are kind of in tatters because he can't go it alone and there aren't right. really the partners he would need within France to take this forward. So, so this is really quite tragic and it could really paralyze sort of European integration for years to come because mm. France is going to have a real internal fight now, you know, around exactly that issue. Uh, and um, yeah. so, I mean, he could see you could see the same thing happen there where France, you know, which already has a decent sized military budget and it could increase as well. Uh, but in an isolationist mode, as you say, without coordination with other European powers, um, uh, some of I think what you're describing, you could say it's sort of a vicious feedback loop that, you know, the the lack of sufficient coordination among democracies uh, in the last 15 years has uh, especially the leading democracies, you know, uh, of Europe and and um, North America with partners, some partners in Southeast Asia, they have not um, really acted in, in concert well enough to head off these massive uh, refugee flows uh, that have to some extent destabilized and altered European politics. Um, and the response to that is instead of, you know, enabling the coordination needed to solve the roots of those problems is to pull back into one's own citadel and That's right. uh, become more isolationist. So, Here's a case also where, you know, the public doesn't really understand that if you do that, you're just going to make it harder to solve the problems. And you're you're going to actually, you know, you're going to create collective action problems between the countries where um, in some cases it could even be a chicken game, right? Some smaller European powers may think, well, look, I mean, if Germany is going to do that, we could cut our defense budget because, you know, we don't really need this. Uh, you know, they have to come through Germany to get to us. So why do we... You know, if you're Belgium or or or, uh, or Denmark or Holland or something, you know, then, uh, for example, why not, right? As opposed to a model where everyone's contributing a fair share to a European defense force. Um, I mean, my sense from Europe, and I know you've discussed this on, on some of the other uh, dialogues, um, is that Europe may not be soon or without going through kind of another cultural shift, quite at the point where much national sovereignty could be ceded, you know, to a to, to a European Council that voted by supermajority rather than unanimous votes on, on the big things like the right. European army. That would be so a major necessary there. shift, absolutely. Yeah, so that's, that's uh, and there's a parallel in American history there that we, we could discuss given enough time. Um, that's kind of what happened in our, the founding of our country actually was moving away from a confederation where unanimity was required to, you know, to some, to votes that didn't require full unanimity. Um, so that's really essential, but, 
But I mean, if if we could start at least to build a European defense force where you know there were um, contingents of, of troops and of course uh, you know naval um, battalions and also you know air forces, people working together uh, as one set of units from different countries, I think that would actually kind of help build the sense of solidarity uh, and see, joint. I, yes, I mean the thing is, it's actually not even a. It is purely, it is to a large extent, a symbolic issue, this issue of national armies. I cannot conceive of a single situation where a European country would be attacked and it would have to defend itself alone. I mean, you know, there is, there is no there is no such a scenario. And I cannot think of a single scenario where a European country would go on a, on a military mission abroad outside a coalition without other partners. So this idea that you need a national army in countries like Lithuania, in countries like Poland, in countries like whatever, even Germany, France, or Italy. I mean, you know, this is just not, this is nothing to do with rational military strategy or with sort of, this is purely to do with tradition, with history, with pride and sort of, you know, uh, identity. Um, and it's very hard to, to overcome these, uh, these barriers, I believe. Well, and that's true here as well. I mean, especially in the United States, given the size of our military, there there are just more military personnel or former veteran, you know, veterans who've served or you know who've been in some uh, capacity in the military everywhere here, um, and they play significant roles in civic life and they end up in leadership positions. But this is to some extent true in in Europe as well, especially where there's still a royal family. Sometimes you know they may have members serving in the military in those countries. So. Yes, it's exactly this symbolism that you're talking about. Um, That's right. So it's well, it seems inevitable that for a while, you know, national militaries are going to continue. But if there could be, as was initially wanted for the UN and never happened, if there could be, you know, joint forces that were created where at least, um, you know, a certain number of, of of troops and 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 ships and aircraft were, you might say, on loan from the different nations in Europe to one joint force who could have different bases, I guess, throughout Europe that train together and should the need arise would act together. Um, I think that would help build this sense of solidarity. Now it's because of the existence of NATO, it, it might seem that's another reason that many Europeans might think, well, we don't really need this because we have a we have a NATO to coordinate us. Um, but I, I would say, you know, the advantage of building a, a European armed forces, even if it's a small one to start, even if it's, you know, a small set of, of joint forces, would be that it should NATO be paralyzed in some case because of a single veto. Um, and NATO also has this problem, right, of requiring unanimous votes, uh, as we see with admitting, you know, um, a new members like in Finland. So um, this could be blocked by Turkey by one by one vote. So with the European armed forces, there would be, as it were, a backup mechanism, right? Otherwise. You know, you would have to quickly cobble together an agreement um, among, you know, heads of state or, or you know, leaders of government uh, in during a crisis unfolding uh, to operate together. So I think this would be another reason to create such a joint European force would just be that it provides um, yeah, some kind of backup for, for NATO. There might well, be cases where NATO couldn't act because that's right. the problem in the United States or something. That, that's right. I mean, you can, you can I think the, 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 the sort of, if you like, sort of military arguments or sort of strategic military arguments that, that, that would, the way you kind of develop it, that are really kind of quite strong. But for me, uh, a European defense capability would have two core purposes. It would be about pooling of technology and about technological development. 
uh, because a lot of this can spin out again into kind of the consumer marketplace and, and can, you know, there can be cross-fertilization. We know just how this industrial military complex can be quite an innovative place. Uh, and I think this would be very good for sort of European innovation and, 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 and economic growth. That, that's one aspect. Um, and the, the other aspect is, and this is kind of a bit like what we did with the money, with the euro. Um, it would be impossible for the French or the Germans to fight with each other if they have a joint army. Um, it would be, you know, so there is a real, I think there's a real argument in this day and age for polarization and where you have these centrifugal uh, forces, right? I mean, Frexit, I mean, you know, Le Pen, she's been beaten down on this. She doesn't want Frexit right now, but it's, it's just under the surface. And yeah. there's a strong movement in Italy, there's a strong movement in Poland and other places. And, um, and so, so I think integrating, uh, you know, the, our military capability would, uh, you know, apart from econo economic benefits, would also really play a peacekeeping, a, a significant peacekeeping role in Europe. Um, mm, and I think that idea. is totally undervalued or under, and, and underestimated the importance of this. Um, I think that's right. Now, that's a very good point because it would change the culture in sort of the subtle ways the conversations would alter because you know, more people from the different militaries would have friends and would know one another. And it, it, it just, it would change the, the sense of identity over time and maybe a couple of decades, but it would definitely make it harder for there to be any intra-European uh, conflicts with, with a military element. It would also per perhaps produce savings in addition, you know, to the technological benefits you were mentioning. But if, if we got to the point where, you know, in the future where most of spending on armed forces in Europe were, into a common pool, you know, you could end up with 20% less spending overall and a That's much more effective military force, you know, That's because right. of the efficiencies there. That, the Especially on the administrative side, on, 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 yeah. the, on the management side of the whole, the bureaucracy, as it were. Uh, yes, very much so, exactly. very much so. Now, um, a question, I mean, one of the ideas with Reboot is to sort of say, well, there, there's a, you know, there, there's certain domains where things really need to have to happen. Over, there's a window of 10 years where things have to happen. We, we know about climate change, the way we, we, we're sort of on a clock. If yeah. we want to kind of keep temperature rises below 1.5%, which is already hugely ambitious and possibly not necessarily possible. Um, but you know, if you want to keep it anywhere near the 1.5%, we have to implement certain radical changes, structural changes. There's other things we, some people believe at the European level, if we want to basically have a prosperous European Union, certain changes have to happen over the next 10 years. Otherwise, there's also the possibility that this whole thing is going to fall apart again. And so there are different domains. And of course, in terms of democracy, I think we are moving through a time where on the one hand, Joe Blokes, citizens in the street are questioning whether democracy is still the best form of governance or whether there's other forms that would be more efficient, that would be more suitable for these difficult and taxing times. Uh, then, of course, there's very low voter participation in, in elections. Um, there, there are these kind of polarizations. There is the kind of the populist wings on both sides, both left and right. Um, and so uh, if you were to sort of say, well, what if low-hanging fruits, what, what yeah. are the things that, you know, like sort of the Europe, the international community, that is the, the if you like, a sort of a, a D7, D10, D12, even if they're not right. formally come together as such, but, you know, activists, academics, uh, and leaders, uh, civil society leaders in these countries, um, what are the low-hanging fruits? What are the kind of, like, two or three initiatives nationally at the U.S., 
mm -hmm. uh, globally uh, that, that we should get behind? Uh, and which ones of those do you consider uh, it would be in the current, if you could take all the different kind of uh, considerations, yeah. what, what would be the most the, the most feasible, the most doable at this point sort of, uh, in, 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 within a 10 year time frame? Yes, uh, and I, I think the D10 or D12 itself is one of those, but I don't think uh, I could say more about this in a second, that that would that necessarily address the internal political dynamics that you were mentioning is so problematic. Um, but I do think, you know, at least at the leadership level, there's a good amount of will uh, to move in the direction of a D10, D12. Um, I, wish, I wish that Germany were inviting uh, you know, more countries like uh, Australia, South Korea, uh, possibly, you know, even India, um, and eventually Brazil would be would be on the list as well with perhaps some reforms. I wish they were being invited, you know, and more effort were being made at the next G7 meeting, which is coming up very soon, right? Uh, uh, just a few days. Um, and uh, that would, you know, maybe help propel forward this initiative, which this has really been spearheaded by a group at the Atlantic Council. Um, uh, Ash Jane, Matt Kronig, uh, but also with some help um, uh, from the group in, in Copenhagen that just had their annual meeting, the Alliance of Democracies there, you may have heard of, headed by Anders Rasmussen, um, former UN uh, NATO Secretary General uh, and uh, Prime Minister of Denmark. So, you know, this has, this movement, I think, has legs. I think, you know, it started. There are a significant number of American senators here who favor something like that. Um, uh, it just hasn't been explained or sold very well to the public. Uh, you know, leaders would have to go and say, look, the reason we need this, uh, you've seen in the war in Ukraine, right, that we need, I mean, NATO has has done some, some goods here. Uh, the war is not over by any means. You know, this may not end well even now. Uh, uh, you know, Ukraine could lose a lot of territory. But look, people, this is not the last thing that the, uh, more shoes will drop. You know, Taiwan is, is coming up uh, before we know it possibly in the next three, four years, five years. Um, so we will see another, another Ukraine, right? Another scenario, except this time a war at sea. Um, and, uh, and then after that, uh, you know, other countries where democratic reform movements have failed. Um, and so we need, we need institutions to, you know, to resist what happened in Belarus, right? What happened in Myanmar, uh, Sudan slipped back into military dictatorship. So did Egypt, uh, so did Venezuela, right? There's so many examples. So politicians have to educate the general public and say, look, I mean, you know, this is, we're on a downward slide here. Um, as things were happening before leading into World War II, people forget that on the eve of World War II, when, you know, when, well, when Hitler uh, was elected and, and took power, there were only something like eight or nine democracies, real democracies in the world. Eight or nine left. That was it. I mean, it, that all had to be rebuilt, as you said, through the Marshall Plan and you know through through years of foreign policy leadership, and hopefully something like that will happen after we pass through the next crisis. But to pass through it, yes, we need. I mean, the D ten or D twelve um, D ten plus is what I call it uh, is the first step, the most feasible. Uh, I mean, beyond that, you know, a new treaty probably. That's right. I mean, I'm 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 kind of a bit. Um, uncertain how helpful Germany would be in the initial mm. phase of this development. There is a there is a, a deeply rooted kind of belief in the German yeah. political class, and it's expressed in a single slogan: um, "Wandel durch Handel." That means change through trade. 
Uh, so yeah. Germany believes it can change Russia by trading with them. It believes wow. it can change China by trading with it. And this is so deeply rooted. This is also part of the mantra of how the EU came together. You know, it, it was a sort of a, you know, the single market and all this. And this mantra German oh, politicians have deeply internalized and they they don't see the limits of this they, they there's a kind of a strong belief it's the kind of the, the washington consensus you know this strong belief that democracy and capitalism go hand in hand and if only we encourage private sector activity then democracy will follow um and, and of yeah. course that isn't the case at all we see this in china we see this in russia we see it in india we see it in in brazil um the two things are actually quite independent and it was almost coincidental yes. that they kind of prospered alongside each other in the post-war years but it, it, there's a hmm. well i was so gonna say i don't want to cut you off yes did you want to finish that i, I was just going to say it worked in europe but you're right i think that's an exception yeah um and uh, uh, yeah, so I, I think that idea has just been fundamentally refuted. Um, I don't agree at all with the school of international relations theory called uh, neorealism or offensive realism, or really any form of realism. I, I believe in the you know the international rules-based order, uh, and uh, you know and treaties and and uh, you know cooperation among nations as as the way forward. Yeah. But I do think the realists got this right, right when they say, look, I mean, this idea that simply you know, free trade with China would bring them round, right? This is um, even John Mearsheimer, who I, you know, otherwise <laughs> despise in, in terms of, you know, the ethical, uh, uh, the lack of ethical integrity in his proposals, um, you know, but he's right on this, that, uh, look, I mean, China has shown that, uh, you know, despotism can be combined with capitalism. And uh, that maybe wasn't so easy to say, you know, in right after World War II, uh, that wasn't apparent. But part of what's happened is that autocracy has adapted, right? They figured out how, oh, we can, you know, we, we can benefit from, we can capitalize on the benefits of free trade, and we can pull people out of poverty, but we can maintain one party rule. Um, I mean, that didn't work throughout, um, you know, Eastern Europe, uh, but that was because of the Soviet model, right? So, you know, there was an external or an additional factor that was preventing economic development um, you know, in the Eastern European countries before the Berlin Wall came down. So, you know, the perception then was, well, you know, once you've uh, gotten rid of tyranny there, uh, then, uh, you know, economic development's following. But as you say, the two just do not always go together. So I think there's, yes, something just has to change in German politics, very fundamentally. There's um, another, there's uh, another deep-seated, I would call it a deep-seated fear and again, this is something that has been constructed through the post-war experience. Um, and this is, I mean, in fact, it's the sort of, in a way, it's the lesson of the Marshall Plan even. It's this idea that with prosperity comes stability. And Germany is really worried about stability or the lack thereof. Um, so, so, so there is a sense that we mustn't sacrifice our prosperity because this may lead to chaos and to instability, and then we get, you know, we'd be back in the deep border of political unrest again. So there is a right. sense that we're serving our democracy best by looking after ourselves first. And there is a kind of, it's, it's a, so Germany, politicians would, would say very clearly, 
And they shake their heads when they see what the U.S. is doing in terms of sacrificing and, and handing over billions and billions to Ukraine. And German politicians very openly kind of sort of smear this and sort of say, well, you know, my mandate is to Germans, not to, you know, like Ukrainians. And, um, I, you know, we don't want to do anything, we, you know, that would somehow reduce our prosperity or reduce our ability to, to do business, uh, to, to, to expand our, our, our trade. And so wow. combining those two, this idea that, through trade, you can sort of, you know, convert dictatorship into democracy. And on the, on the one hand, on the other hand, the sort of the moral yeah. high ground, but by looking after yourself, you look after the world, um, is, is a kind of a really kind of toxic mix. And so Germany is, is right. I, I, you know, it's like when you, when you really look into it, it's just has no sense of sacrifice or no sense of doing something for the greater good beyond Germany's borders. And, you know, of course, you know, when you look at the, the financial crisis of 2008, the, the way Germany really kind of put like a massive straight shake of austerity on Greece and then mm. on Italy and on Spain. Right. Um, I mean, it, it takes yeah. a particular political okay. mindset to do that. And so, um, you know, it, it's, I think, and this is not left or right in Germany. I think this is, this runs across the political spectrum in Germany. Um, and so, so yeah. in, in a way, I think that would have to, a D10 would have to, in a way, in my view, kind of move forward initially, because it would require certain sacrifices, wouldn't it? I mean, you know. Well, to an extent, although, again, you know, with cooperation of 10 or 12 large nations, uh, if you had, you know, India and Australia and South Korea contributing some. And by the way, with South Korea, one of the obstacles is Japan not wanting South Korea to join uh, a G7 or a larger version of it. So you have to get over that prejudice as well. <laughs> you know, each country has its own problems here. There's some obstacles coming. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, I think, it, you know, if there were a larger organization that was doing more things, right, then it would require contributions from Germany, from France, from Britain. People would see, oh, you know, large investments are going into these initiatives. But you have to sell them in terms of this is a long-term benefit, right? That Look, one of the things this will do is it will produce greater stability or it will reduce the incentives for military coups or, you know, for, um, you know, massive scorched earth campaigns like we saw in Syria uh, within civil wars. So this will, how will this help you, Germany or other countries in Europe? By reducing uh, the pushes that are driving massive migrant flows, right? So. Um, there is a benefit if, if this can be explained well enough that the average citizen understands it. Uh, but I see what you mean, that it's running against a kind of, a, uh, you know, a, a certain grain of thinking that's now very ingrained. Let me just maybe I would say, I think, <laughs> speaking from from this side of the Atlantic Ocean, that I mean, that German idea isn't entirely wrong. Uh, I think there's something to the notion that, you know, make sure that your citizens are happy enough with how things are going at home or your own country could become a source of instability and problem. So maybe it looks a little different from here. I think the United States could could maybe do a little more of what Germany has done in this regard. Uh, but, we, could meet, uh, we could meet in the middle house. Uh, yeah, yeah so, that's right. Well, so so right that you know Germany maybe has to alter to the to the point to, of seeing how you know paying into a common pool that will produce these collective benefits, you know, really will yield major uh, dividends in the long run. Um, uh, and I, I must say, I'd, I, yeah, I find that war, the response to the war in Ukraine, still a little disappointing. I wish, um, it's, you know, I see it's, this. It's shameful. 
Yeah, it's I see the same that. thing going on. And here's a case where maybe it's good Americans don't know too much. About, if they were fully informed, they would be screaming, why is the United States, you know, doing paying probably half or two thirds of the, uh, you know, the, the support going to the Ukrainian government in a European war? This is you know, just what happened in Bosnia again and Kosovo. And so this is the kind of thing that would drive American, you know, isolationist blowback here because people will be angry. Understandably so, by the way, understandably yeah. so. Right. So so that's another thing, you know, the leaders of Europe have to think about, well, you know, are some of the things we're doing, are they making the political dynamic worse in the United States? Are they making it hard for moderates like Joe Biden to sell to the American public? Look, you know, you should support spending lots of money on these on these uh, international efforts because we have partners who are doing their fair share. That's, I think, one of the benefits in the long run of a, of a D10, D12, or a larger alliance behind it is that it can kind of assure people in each of the main participating countries that others are doing their fair share. It, it avoids the free rider problem or the, you know, the game of chicken, right? Is, is, this, I think, is, is a major point that can help with domestic politics. But here in the U.S., yeah, I think we, we probably need to do more to, um, you know, to, to try to restore those parts of the country that are in shambles and you know, have been um, eviscerated due to the loss of various industries in the last three decades, um, you know, areas where education is not doing very well, where um, you know, the communities are impoverished. It's a shame that we couldn't pass the so-called human infrastructure bill that you know, would have been a major, almost like a Marshall Plan for the United States here if, yeah. if that had passed. Um, so that would be a little bit, you know, like a, a sample of, of the German approach, right? If we could, it, it would probably make American politics better uh, if, you know, we, we had a stronger sense of shared prosperity, um, yeah, across all parts of the country. So, it's 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 yeah. swings and roundabouts, isn't it? It's like if you kind of if you kind of go for too long in one direction, then it requires some kind of course correction, and it goes in both in both directions. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about. Uh, I think Germany would be, I think Germany in, in the long term would definitely support a kind of a D10, D12. I just don't see take a, an early leadership role in this for, mm. for, for a number of reasons. A, because of the kind of the mindset I just described and also because of its lack of foreign policy experience. I mean, Germany is, when it comes to foreign policy, a baby, um, a very young country. I mean, remember, Germany only had really foreign policy since 1990, you know, since unification. Before then, yeah. it was essentially yeah. kind of occupied territory with a kind of a, a sort of a liberal kind of uh, occupation regime. Um, so, so I mean, you know, I grew up in West Germany. I never felt like occupied. Uh, but of mm -hmm. course, anything from our school curricula to our foreign policy was determined by, by the Allies. Uh, and, 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 and sort right. of, so, 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 so Germany um, never really had to make any hard choices in terms of foreign policy. Germany isn't really hasn't doesn't have like the way the UK does, you know, like a, a foreign office that that is kind of like sort of um, has that experience or France indeed. So this is why I'm wondering why within a European context, a D10, D12 shouldn't initially place a greater focus on France. Because mm. France also is in the Security Council with a permanent seat. France does have nuclear weapons. And there is this whole notion of about this, the, the Europeanization of France's nuclear arsenal now, so that, you know, that it would right. take a key role in building up a European military capability because around the kind of the, the, the nuclear arsenal that it has. So I think in terms of a D10, 
Macron, and he, he's just been elected, re-elected. He's got four years. He's got a really difficult domestic agenda ahead, but globally he could he could blossom. And I so, so I wonder, you know, and especially outside the EU, where he doesn't have to go and lock heads with Germany. So I, I wonder whether there would be a real platform for Macron uh, to, to, to get involved in something really big. And I don't know whether this is worth considering. No, I, I think you're right. Uh, and and I, I basically just agree with that analysis. I think he already wants to do something like this. And, you know, some of his key advisors uh, and people around him understand the need for this. As I might say, is true also of I'm not a huge fan of Prime Minister Boris Johnson in Britain, but I think he he's right on this. And in fact, he even has proposed the D10 initiative when, when Britain was hosting the G7 last year. Uh, likewise, his, his uh, foreign minister right, has proposed something like this. Um, uh, I wonder if the new uh, foreign minister in Germany might be somewhat favorable. She's interesting. I personally like her, but that's yes. just, I, 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 like, I like her politics. Um, but, she wanted to have a feminist foreign policy, a bit like the, the, the New Zealanders. And in a German context, you don't believe, you can't believe how funny that sounds in a German context. Imagine you had like a, <laughs> a Secretary right, of State with, be, with a feminist, you know, uh, policy agenda. Or Iceland. There's another one with a feminist government at one point, right? Yes. I, <laughs> but I, I like her. Would... She's good. And she's actually, uh, Beerbock, she's called. Uh, and, uh, yeah. she, she's, I think she's really, she's very principled when it comes to human rights. Uh, yes. Unlike, as I said, she doesn't have this German mentality, um, you know, like, well, basically, you know, human rights are essentially something for Germans and not so much for anybody else. Mm. Um, so, so, yes. so she has oh. that much, much, much more principled stance. But of course, Olaf Scholz, one of his first official deeds was to make it very clear that foreign politicians are made at the chancellery, not uh, at the uh, foreign ministry. And, and so th that instantly right. kind of curtailed, clipped her wings. Uh, right. So she's but quite in a very difficult right. situation that Olaf Scholz doesn't want her to have a principled foreign policy. They want to carry on with this kind of trade-based expansionist mm -hmm. foreign policy. And uh, and, and there isn't really any difference between like uh, SPD or CDU. They're all in that agreed that this has been the best policy for Germany for the last 70 years. And they've got to carry on well, with that if they can. Right. I mean, it, this, I think, Maybe a shock to the system now with Ukraine. Maybe this very fast, very steep learning curve will happen, uh, and maybe that's one again of a few good things that can come out of this this awful, awful total war uh, against you know with who knows maybe a hundred thousand Ukrainians killed by the end or more. I mean, uh, refugees in the millions, like double what we had in Syria. Uh, I hope this shock to the system maybe will change minds, you know, in, in, in Berlin and you know, in, in other European capitals. But, yeah, it's a steep, a steep learning curve. Um, and, uh, you know, to this extent, I mean, we we're complaining, you know, about other governments, you know, Poland and so on. But maybe in this case, some of the leaders in Eastern Europe can come together and say, look, I mean, you know, if you need to educate your citizens about why <laughs> you, you, you don't want one party rule is better. People have forgotten, you know. Uh, why, why do we need all this mess that we call democracy? Why can't we just, you know, have an efficient system like in China? Well, there are some people, maybe they're in their 70s now, but they can come to your schools and tell you why you don't want that, because they lived in East Germany, or they lived in Poland, or, you know, they lived right. in Bulgaria. They're still alive, and they can remind people of what that really looks like when you go down that path. And and so maybe there needs to be some remembering of just how bad that was. And people can lose track of it. Um, 
This is one thing that does surprise me. Again, you know, as a foreign observer, I always thought maybe in Germany there would be a deeper appreciation of that just because of the, you know, the integration of people from East Germany, um, that this would be sort of more deeply set in cultural knowledge and that people would well, see, well, why Ukraine doesn't want to give up. <laughs> but, well, the, what you find uh, in Germany is, is that the kind of the Christian conservatives, uh, the Angela Merkel's party, um, who is now in opposition, um, they they very much take a right. kind of a much more, if you like, aggressive pro-Ukrainian stance and are much more aligned with the sort of Anglo-Saxon position on this. Uh, yes. uh, the SPD, like uh, Olaf Scholz, the current chancellor, he comes from this really brand tradition, like uh, Ostpolitik, right. and and you know, and this is a very different. This is a bit like Nixon's China kind of, you know, is this is this kind of, uh, and they haven't actually moved really beyond that. Although their rhetoric has moved on, but not really. I mean, there is still they would, you know. Honestly, I believe once there is a peace agreement signed between, and it might take years, but once there's a peace agreement between Ukraine and Russia, Germany is going to be back in Russia doing business the next <laughs> yeah. day. There's no question in my mind that Germany is, is, is going to basically bust the sanctions the moment there's a peace agreement. They would sort of instantly say, no longer needed, we go back in. Um, and and, um, right, this is where you see where, you know, if you had, well, maybe, you know, a collective decision-making process in NATO, or if you included allies, you know, in Asia, in the Southern Hemisphere, you would have a D10, a D12, maybe a larger alliance, including many NATO members and beyond. This is where, if that could make supermajority decisions, one of the key ones would be about large-scale economic sanctions. So, you know, countries would, in joining that, they would be pledging to say, well, you know, maybe we think these sanctions should be lifted, but the, the group, there's a strong majority, a supermajority that says otherwise. So this would be, you know, the, the German government in signing up to such a policy would be handing over a certain amount of decision-making power in, in that way. But so would the United States, right? So would we would say, so take the opposite case where, you know, say uh, when Trump wanted to, to end the agreement with, uh, with Iran, uh, the United States would have been outvoted in, in, in such a decision, right? If you had a, a D12 or a larger alliance of democracies, that they're probably only the United States, maybe one other ally would have voted to destroy that deal that was, um, you know, presumably to some extent restraining uh, transition to having nuclear weapons in Iran. So the benefit, you have to make those decisions to cooperate with other countries, Um and, and so, yeah, the inclination of one country is to some extent their checks and balances. Um, I mean, you might be right about what will happen after, after the end of the war. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, when people see the level of devastation uh, and, and if there's a fundamental change in the energy paradigm in Europe and we're on the way to, um, you know, to be becoming more independent uh, of Russian energy supplies, that might be a shift that's hard to undo. <laughs> Well, so, the thing is, the problem yeah. is, is when you tie the sanctions to the, the, the war of aggression in Ukraine, then it's very yeah. hard to, to to basically to carry on with the sanctions once that war ends. Maybe the sanctions need to be tied yeah. to the Russian regime, to Putin. Uh, and for as long as he stays in power, they mustn't be lifted. Uh, that's my position anyway on this. I agree. Um, yeah. And so, so, so because the issue here isn't so much... Ukraine, the issue is Russia, and it's, and it's not just an expansionist right. policy. It's, I mean, it's much more than that. And this idea that they would stop with Ukraine is hugely questionable. Um, I mean, it's entirely possible they're going to go on to Moldova or that they go on to other. Um, yes. And, right. you know, you know and, and of course, there's Kazakhstan, there's all this other, there, you know, 
other kind of like formative, of, you know, uh, uh, Russian colonies, for the lack of a better word. And, 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 yes. and Russia is basically wants to build up its empire again under, under Putin. Sure. I mean, there's a Russian speaking part of Estonia and Kaliningrad, right? There's these other right parts of Moldova they have their eyes on for sure. Um, so, I mean, here, I think really the expansion of NATO can definitely help. And I would say, and this is against those, those realists, right? That I think if we had admitted Ukraine to NATO, um, despite all the corruption and problems within the, the Ukrainian government itself, if we had done that back in 2014 as a response to Crimea, I think that might have deterred Putin from doing what he's doing, because I think at least going that last step or that final hurdle to attack a NATO country, I think that's where he and he hesitates. And I think even if he issued that order, I'm not sure what would happen inside the Kremlin. And so I, I think NATO still presents a very effective deterrent. And so yeah, now going back, I wish you know that, that Ukraine had been admitted after the Crimea annexation. We certainly had, I think, sufficient reason there to do that in response to that, you know, huge violation of, inter of the UN treaty, of the Kellogg-Brien pact, but really the core of international law was, was violated there. Um, so yeah, there has to be this, this stronger will to stand up to this kind of regime itself, which is, you know, poisoning so many others. Again, Belarus, you know, the, the effects on, even in Kazakhstan on the other side. Um, and so that's, that's part of this learning curve, right? The mindset has to change that, look, you know, this is an existential fight, right? I mean, if we don't do this, we could have a world um, that in 50, 60 years is dominated by, by totalitarian dictatorships. And I mean that, I don't mean to sound like a scare tactic or, you know, it sounds like the worst case scenarios for climate change, but I think, unfortunately, it's true that there is a non-negligible chance. I couldn't give you a percentage, but but definitely not insignificant, that that's where things could be by the time that our children are in their 60s, that could be the world, right? It could look completely different than the world does now, where, you know, it's a total surveillance world, right? And things that's are controlled right. so, by so, one party. Yeah. That's right. So that, but that, take, that, that takes us really sort of like right back to this question. So, um, a D10 and what would follow from that. And so I'm quite conscious of the time, but what I would like to do before we kind of come to an end, I would like to, um, so, so the, the problem of course with the D10 or any kind of thing at that level is, is that um, for individuals like yourself or you know, uh, even more so for somebody like me, it's we, we don't have any influence on this process. So all we can do, we can be informed by standards and we can speculate and right. we can obviously, you know, we can, you know, we can contribute to the discourse and in, in that way maybe kind of influence thinking. But it is a kind of it's a it's a process that is kind of beyond our direct control. Uh, so so the question is, um, when, when when you look at the sort of a kind of the formation of a democracy alliance, however it would constitute itself. Um, what, a twofold question. On the one hand, what kind of time frame in your thinking does that kind of formation have on the one hand? And in the very short term, in the next say, say six to 12 months, what would you expect or what would, you, what would need to happen for this to actually gain any significant traction at all. I mean, this could also equally just basically get pushed aside by the next big thing, China invading Taiwan or this or that. I mean, there's so many distractions that could take us away from this idea, but you know, what would have to happen in the next five to 10 months 
um, for, for this yes. to really gain traction? I, I think really in the next year, um, definitely by the time of the G7 meeting next year, um, that's kind of almost your time frame. Uh, that this initiative, you know, for for bringing in um, Asian partners, I think at this point, as bad as the problems are in India, it should be India, South Korea, Australia, you know, all should be brought in. Uh, we should, you know, put invites out to Indonesia that maybe in future. And also, I think we have to say with Brazil, you know, um, I don't like the current president or uh, administration there at all. But I think we have to recognize you need at least one country from from South America, uh, and um, and we you know we need to to say this is urgent now. So there's in my view a small time window because of the crisis in Ukraine where this can be pushed forward because there's a bit more awareness uh, by you know people uh, nations across the world um, that uh, these threats are increasing, and it may be that people in Asia don't yet perceive oh this is no threat to us directly or in South America. But if Taiwan is invaded, uh, they will perceive this very quickly. So we have to stress that possibility again and again. So I do think that there's a small time window where um, some public support could be galvanized, but it really does take strong leadership at the very top, as you're saying. So it might, in fact, it might have to be Emmanuel Macron, right? I assume that Boris Johnson won't be here too much he's longer. He's too divisive so, in Europe. I mean, yeah, nobody he, would follow uh, be, Boris Johnson in Europe. Right, so, you know, so there's he's no totally, way... Well, and he's morally bankrupt with all the yeah, party gates. It would be, it would not. In Europe, he has no credibility anymore. Well, he, what he did with Brexit was terrible. As the yeah, former Brexit, mayor of London, yeah, yeah. But but then it didn't, it didn't stop and there. <laughs> and the whole at the moment with the Northern Ireland Protocol is is, is yeah, a disaster. Yeah, I know. It's, 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 it's a tragedy. So leave this aside. Leave Johnson aside. It's got to be Macron. Perhaps maybe the German government can come around and be persuaded. Um, uh, maybe a, you know a group of leaders from uh, from Eastern European countries together, but this has to happen quickly. I mean, the, the Biden administration is trying to hold a summit of democracies, um, and they are involving to some extent NGOs and civic organizations. So perhaps within the next year, I know there are some groups that are trying to do this. If you could get a whole number of different um, NGOs of uh, you know small civic organizations and some larger ones like Global Idea. Uh, you know, for example, um, to, to push forward and say, we see now that we really need, uh, you know, a global alliance of democracies, that NATO is not enough. It's really so focused in the European theater, and it doesn't seem like it's going to expand globally anytime soon, and it requires those unanimous votes. So, you know, we need a different framework, and we need stepping stones to a, to a new treaty that's going to be a larger alliance. Um, the longer time frame, uh, so I, yeah, I think civic organizations and leaders, you know, in the G7 framework may be the easiest path to follow in the immediate future. But I would say, I think, you know, like climate change, that there's probably only about a 10 or 15 year window in which to do this. And this is scary. I, I think the reason I say this is the following, that within the next 10 or 15 years, not only will maybe Taiwan be taken over, but, you know, the, the power in, in Beijing, uh, the, the leaders of the, the Communist Party there and other dictators who follow them around the world see what's happened to Putin in this crisis. They see the sanctions that were brought to bear. And they're not stupid, right? They realize that in order to insulate themselves from the same kind of sanctions regime, well, they need to do two things. First, they already, you know, we're all already much more dependent on trade with China than we are with, with Russia. Um, that's true even in the United States. European countries are especially exposed 
uh, in the case of energy dependence in Russia, but most countries are not that very dependent on, on Russian trade. China is a different matter, right? So they need to continue cultivating those trade ties that make it impossible to enter a sanctions regime against them. They also need to create their own banking system and financial system that works across the world as an alternative to uh, the dollar as reserve currency, the SWIFT system for banking, all the things that we've locked Russia out of, right? In the recent um, sanctions round, China would be immune to those if it can create uh, an alternative network that's broad enough and get enough other countries sort of under its wing or you know, create a kind of vassal state status uh, through its Belt and Road Initiative with plenty of countries in perhaps Africa, some in South America, uh, many others in Southeast Asia. Um, some people say Cambodia is practically just like a vassal state in China now, for example, right? So this has to happen quickly. Um, the thought being that, look, if a crisis comes with China eventually, if you had, um, well, let's say a D12 that could coordinate you know, a broader set of democracies, uh, say most of the NATO members, uh, most European countries, but with partners in Southeast Asia, the Philippines, Indonesia, you know, and partners in South America, um, a joint sanctions regime um, would include maybe countries commanding, say, 70%, 75% of world GDP. So even if the sanctions weren't that much, say they were a 10% tariff, something, it would be an, have an enormous impact on China. Yeah. Because so we have about a 10-year window in which we can do that. We can create a framework that um, exposes uh, China or keeps China exposed to that kind of a sanctions regime. So it's Absol urgent. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, the, the way we the way we do reboot is is we have we have we have sort of two um, modes of operation. We have sort of one-off interviews, and then we have this idea of like a dialogue, an ongoing dialogue, where we re-engage every six to twelve months and carry on the conversation. And the idea really is to. The ambition, I should say, is because, of course, you can't over that time frame, you can't really plan this. But the ambition is that this would really kind of span the 10 years between now and 2030, and that we would chronicle through these dialogues, um, these transformative processes. And the question is, if uh, if I would invite you back in, say, six months time, how mm. would we make sure that we're not repeating the same conversation? In other words, how what what how would we move this conversation on? What, what what do you think? What would be what could happen between now and then that would allow us to kind of move it on? Well, what will happen uh, in that time frame, and we, we could definitely meet again and discuss. I'd love to do that. Um, will be the summit uh, for democracies uh, conference here again in presumably in person in Washington this time, perhaps maybe with a you know with a uh, some people on Zoom, but hopefully it'll be mostly in person. Uh, so with that event, the first one held this last December was more of a just a cart kind of teaser, a starter uh, initiative. So my hope would be that that's a more focused um, meeting without quite as many countries or with a smaller group within the, the, the whole set of nations invited that really try to push policy forward. Uh, and it should plan, um, you know, to push a, a D10 initiative or something similar um, for the next G7 meeting. Uh, since it clearly isn't going to happen this time uh, when it's when the G7 meets in Germany. Um, and that, that I think those are the benchmarks I would want to see. Um, so we have to convince to some extent our own State Department here uh, that, look, you know, this meeting, this next one can't just be a, a photo op, right? This 
because that the last one was largely you know just people getting together and showing oh look the solidarity that we have um since then obviously the war in ukraine has happened um surely that must focus attention i hope that the next summit of democracies is a very serious policy so when, when did you is it is it date for that already set no i don't believe it is it, it may not be in december it might be more like october and november um but um You know, I guess it's a shame, much as I love Joe Biden and voted for him. I mean, uh, I think he's really trying on this. He believes in this. He was one of the initial signatories uh, to the um, to the charter in Copenhagen, the, the group that Rasmussen set up. Um, and so I know he believes in this, but it's he's got so many things to deal with in the United mm -hmm. States and our domestic policy. Um, but maybe they'll try to push this forward. I want to see a focused effort here. And I think you know, there could be bipartisan support for this within the American government, just because there are so many um, senators here and that so much comes down to our Senate, the way our government works. There are many Republican senators here, um, you know, uh, including well, not only Mitch Romney, um, but uh, senators from Florida, some others from the South in the United States, um, my own senator uh, here in New Jersey, he's a Democrat, but there are There are moderates, you might say, to some extent on foreign policy issues who agree with the need to do something um, so that we're positioned, you know, if we have a new Cold War with China, which is an awful thing to say. But if, and if of that's, course, you have yeah. the midterms coming up this year as well. And, right. and I mean, I don't know, I, you have a much better insight into this, but I'm, I'm quite worried that, that, that the Democrats might lose their majority. And, and so... But this would then be a situation not too dissimilar to, to Macron's in France, actually, right. which would free Biden mm. up because he could probably forget much of his domestic agenda after that. It would right. be a grinding, slow process. Um, and he could right, focus exactly. on the big kind of foreign policy ideas. Uh, because I think that's right. Yeah. I mean, that, which is what tends to happen also when a president here is elected for a second term, because they usually don't have much of a majority in, in Congress. Um, the problems here in our system are much worse than in France and that that's much more likely to happen here that you usually with our presidents they have about one year in which they could get stuff done whether they have a four-year term or an eight-year term they have one year yeah yeah that's right <laughs> terrible that's right. it's our government just almost completely ceased to work in terms of passing uh domestic legislation but that's right the foreign policy uh could keep going and and I think um you know again still Uh, while Republicans will be crowing in glory about how they defeated, you know, um, Biden's uh, uh, majority in, in the House of Representatives and have taken over the domestic agenda. And then we'll just have the usual gridlock that we always have where That's right. nothing can pass because Biden would veto any of their of their measures. Um, then, yeah, maybe the, 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 the focus will shift to foreign policy. And it's, it's this is also, of course, that's right. It's, of course, also one of the really interesting effects or impacts of Ukraine, that it has shown that you can bring together nationalism and, uh, and, and liberalism in, 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 a single, in a single idea. Uh, I mean, I think that nothing has had more of a unifying effect on the kind of American public than the war in Ukraine. And, and so I, I think kind of building a D10 or something of that kind out of this would, you know, you could capitalize on that, on, on that, on, on that newfound unity At mm -hmm. that level, at, at the foreign policy level. So, so me, this is. Oh, sorry, I know we're we're shortly out of time, but let me let you finish your thought. No. Um, so no, this is what I just want to say. So, um, um, so basically, what we should do is is I mean, we were hoping to have an a, an another season of reboot dialogues 
in uh, November, December. Um, and um, I, I will be in touch then uh, round about, well, in advance. And we can discuss a topic, how we frame it. Uh, and hopefully I see you then and we, we'll, we'll develop this idea further. Do, do I have time to say? No, I'd love to do that. Absolutely. If I have time to say one other thing I think should happen before that. Uh, sure. And that is, um, well, the admission of, uh, you know, two new NATO members, right? So uh, I really hope that this gets done. I think that will have important symbolic value um, and could restore faith in the alliance and also, um, you know, restore faith in, in, um, in many Eastern European countries that the alliance is really going to, you know, to stand up to support them as well. I think it will have that symbolic importance. So here is another uh, place where, um, well, the United States and Germany, maybe to some extent France, but Germany seems especially well positioned to me to put some pressure on the Turkish government. You think I'm yes. right about that? I mean, just because the trade agree, connection. Yes. So, this, this, it's very close, closely integrated economically, yes. And also so the yeah, families. They really need what to, a huge, yeah. yeah. Let's twist the arm of Erdogan to say, you know, we can't hand over to Istanbul every Kurdish dissident everywhere in Europe to you. That's impossible. Right? But uh, something has to be done. You know, some some fig leaf, some symbolic gestures, concession. But then, um, you know, Finland and Sweden have to be admitted. This, well, is, this is this is this is tragic what's happening here with Sweden yeah. and Finland. And it's um. It's terrible. And I, I know that there's a lot of kind of back office uh, sort of dialogue going on. Um, but um, it's it's um, I, from what I understand, Erdogan has put down his foot and he is kind of trying to drive a hard bargain. Mm. A, a totally, I think, inappropriate bargain, in my view. Uh, he's, he's mixing domestic yeah. politics and international politics in a way that shouldn't happen, not within NATO. It's He's asking something that's politically impossible past a certain point. You can't hand over all these people who would be, that really is a direct violation of asylum law, right? And a deep one, um, uh, you know, they would become political prisoners. So um, I think, yeah, maybe Olaf Schultz needs at this point to do something and say, look, you know, hmm, if you're gonna take this stance, there are various countermeasures that Germany could impose on Turkey. Uh, Usually Erdogan is open to business deals. I mean, we have seen yeah. this with the refugee kind of crisis. Uh, the, the way Germany kind of dealt with that with Turkey, and I think there may well be some kind of financial deal that 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 might open it up. But we'll, 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 you know, we will see what what, what Germany what the can help. Yes. Absolutely, John. Thank you very thank you. very much. This has been really really interesting. Uh, I'm so glad that we have uh, crossed paths. Um, it's a very interesting conversation. So let's let's develop this idea of a kind of a, a global democracy alliance further. Uh, and see see how that develops over the next six months. I mean, Absolutely. I don't know. There's a how how would it be if we had the next? Uh, we would say when you are at the conference, uh, wouldn't that be also something quite interesting to do? It, you know, that might be. Yeah. Um, I mean, there may be like two or three different meetings happening at once, and that there could be a gathering of NGOs in Washington D.C. So if that happens, I will certainly try to go. Um, and the group that I'm part of, the um, Coalition for a World Security Community, is one of these small NGOs that That's right. is pushing, well, either for a global NATO or, you know, for a D10 as a pathway forward. Um, so I hope, yeah, I hope that I may be there. <laughs> Some Excellent. Uh, Excellent. John, thank you very much for making time. I wish you a, a great day um, and, um, and stay, stay healthy. And um COVID is not oh, over in Germany. We have another big oh. summer wave coming on, which is terrible. Sorry. Yes. It's, uh, it's with us for some time to come. So uh, um, stay well and we'll catch okay. up uh, in the autumn. 
And have a good evening, because I know it's nighttime there. <laughs> That's right. Thank you very much. Take Talk care. to you Thank soon. Thank you so much. All right. Bye-bye. <clears throat>